Now you'd be like, hey, a war gave you the affinity for entrepreneurship. Today, entrepreneurship has become about making money. But really, to me, what entrepreneurship is, is taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity. No bigger risk, uncertainty, ambiguity than a war. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Today, we dive deep into the power of community-led growth with the incredible Lloyd Lobo. As a co-founder of Boast.ai, and Traction, and also the author of From Grassroots to Greatness, Lloyd has harnessed the raw power of community to drive success in business. In this episode, we'll uncover the essence of surrounding yourself with the right tribe, the genuine passion needed for a community-driven company, and the vitality of defining your own success. Plus, you'll get some insights on the significance of self-care in the entrepreneurial world. So if you're ready to transform your business by tapping into the strength of community, this episode is not to be missed. Let's get started. Hey, Lloyd, welcome to the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How's it going today? I am doing well. Thanks for hosting me, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for being here, Lloyd. I've been so excited to talk with you. You know, I've had very few interactions with you so far, but I've been so impressed when you recently released a book, and we'll talk about that, but you sent me an email letting me know you released the book. And I'm like, oh, okay. And you said, hey, go over to LinkedIn. And if you can, give me a little bit of love. And I went over there and uh, I was kind of expecting, truthfully, when someone sends me an email like that, okay, there'll be like 20 likes or something. And I went there and there's like a bazillion likes, a hundred comments. And I'm like, Oh, wow, man. And now I went from feeling like being asked to do something to kind of feeling special, to be honest with you, because there are just so many people that are following you. So I'll, I'll open with that. But before we get into that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what your thing is, and then we can dig from there. Definitely, man. Um, you know, I guess I'm an accidental entrepreneur. <laughs> I never really imagined that I'd be an entrepreneur. But what's really funny is I think my mom willed it into existence. So if you notice, my name has an E in it. It's not the typical spelling of Lloyd. And growing up, everyone would make fun of me and ask, like, you know, make mistakes in my name till today. Everyone just misses it. So I would ask her, like, why do you have this? Like, why would you do this? And she's like, someday you're going to start a business and you won't be able to trademark the traditional Lloyd. So I threw an E in there. And, you know, I guess E stands for entrepreneur. So maybe she willed it into, into existence of manifestation, uh, law of attraction, whatever you want to call it. But my journey has been kind of atypical. I was born in Kuwait. My parents, my dad was a farmer in India. My mom grew up in the slums of Mumbai. And they weren't educated. They couldn't afford to go anywhere. And back then, back in the day, if you were in India and you weren't educated, you couldn't afford to go in the West, you would go to the Middle East because the Kuwaiti dinar, the Middle Eastern currency, translated significantly to Indian rupees. So they were in Kuwait. They couldn't afford to take me on vacation, go on vacation anywhere fancy. So our summers were spent in the slums of Mumbai. And probably my fondest memories as a kid were those experiences where puddles were turned into ponds and we'd be swimming. No toilet in the house, but we'd, we'd, uh, we'd go to the public washroom, restroom, and 
literally going to the bathroom was communal. We've probably never seen something like that where people are standing in line to pump water into the house, to go to the bathroom. Watching TV was communal. Now, my grandparents' house had a TV. They had, they had 10 kids. And my mom was one of the oldest and the only one overseas, so she could bring back a TV. But then the the houses, like 10 houses around didn't have TV. So we'd watch TV together with people looking in. And those were my fondest memories. Every summer when we had to go back to Kuwait, I would literally grab my parents by their feet and not want to leave. I'd cry. Those were my fondest memories. A few years later, uh, I think I was like nine, maybe eight, nine, ten. I can't remember, but in that range. And the Kuwait was struck by the Gulf War. Security had lapsed, no phones, no internet. And I experienced something miraculous. I, When I went down the building that day with my dad, you know how in 2023, bad news just perpetuates and festers and people just belabor on it? Yeah. Back then, it wasn't like that. Life was very simple. People immediately started trying to solve the problem. Hey, I'll guard the building from X time to Y time. I'll organize food supplies. Hey, if you have family members displaced, I have extra room. And somebody else is like, hey, we'll talk to the school since the school's shut and maybe we'll organize a camp there. Every building became a sub-community that coordinated with the next building and the next building and became the largest grassroots evacuation movement that communicated with governments and embassies and took us to safety. That day, actually, I witnessed something, two things that were very powerful. One, that great leaders cascade purpose, not goals. I was so young and Rambo was huge back then, right? So I threw on a red bandana and I was running around trying to be as helpful as I could. I felt like I was rescuing Kuwait from, from Iraq. Nobody, nobody there made me feel insignificant that my help wasn't wanted. They're like, they let me do whatever I did and contribute in whatever way. And, you know, as I, as I was reflecting back, writing this book, I thought about, you know, there was an urban legend, maybe, or a real story about President Kennedy. He was walking the halls in NASA. And at midnight, he sees a janitor sweeping the room. And he says, what are you doing at this hour? And the janitor says, sir, I'm putting a man on the moon. That's how great leaders cascade purpose, where the lowest common denominator, whether it's a janitor thinks they're putting a man on the moon, or a nine-year-old thinks they're rescuing Kuwait from Iraq. So I, I understood the power of great leaders and how they make even the lowest person feel feel like they're part of the mission. I understood the power of people in coming together, united by a great purpose. They can move mountains. And years later, I realized that it also gave me the affinity for entrepreneurship. Now you'd be like, hey, a war gave you the affinity for entrepreneurship. Today, entrepreneurship has become about making money. But really to me, what entrepreneurship is, is taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity. No bigger risk, uncertainty, ambiguity than a war. Fast forward a few more years, our family immigrated to Canada. I, you know, what's, what's really funny is I didn't finish high school and I graduated with an engineering degree. My life is a lot of stories like this, stories of luck. And, and I tell people that luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. People who don't get lucky, they don't flip enough. The ones who get lucky, they keep flipping. Risk, 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 risk. So now this, you know, teenager, right? I mean, I think 19, and I don't have a high school diploma. What would most kids do? They would not apply to university. They would uh, probably like try to repeat a year or whatever. I freaking apply to every single university, man. And in Canada, there are no SATs. 
So luck would have it, one university reached out and and said, one college reached out and said, hey, can you write these entrance exams? I'd send them transcripts prior to the diploma. And I wrote the, the math and English exam and I did well. And they asked me about my transcript and I concocted a story about political unrest in Kuwait and uh, the transcripts will be coming. So they said, you know what? Your scores, these entrance scores are good and you did well in your prior year. So let's just you know, start the semester. And if you don't produce the transcripts by the end of the month, then we're going to have to unenroll you. Luck would have it. It never freaking followed up. So I graduated with an engineering degree, but I like ditched all my high school exams. I don't have a high school diploma. So, so you know, my my life is all about like taking silly risks like that. Uh, I guess with this affinity of going through the Gulf War. So I graduate engineering now, and uh, you know, another another lesson probably looking back at the journey, being around people so much is it's neither the destination nor the journey, but the companions that matter the most, right? So we were going on this rickety bus from Kuwait to Baghdad to Jordan on the highway of death. Buses were bombed. You weren't sure you're going to live or die. But the people in that bus were like singing and smiling and laughing and playing the guitar to keep each other company. And, you know, as you look back, you realize that, hey, man, it's it's truly neither the destination nor the journey, but the companions that matter the most. You could be sipping champagne in a chateau in Paris with toxic people and feel suffocated and want to leave. Or you could be like me, swimming in the puddles of the slums in Mumbai and not want to leave. You could be on a crappy journey on the way to hell and great companions make it memorable. That's what that Gulf War was. So anyway, fast forward, I graduate engineering now, you know, holding that thought of the companions, why the companions matter the most. I don't want to go into a typical coding job. And I asked a business person because back then, 2004, five, we wouldn't use the word startup or entrepreneur. It was like business person, businessman. So I asked somebody that I knew through the family and they said, hey, the best skill you can learn is communication. Your communication kind of sucks. So you got to fix that because being an entrepreneur, being in business is all about communicating, convincing your spouse you're not going to bring money, convincing early employees, convincing customers when you don't have anything. So fix that. Now I knew it would be very hard for me to be self-motivated because you know we write in job descriptions self-motivated, but I think like 95% of the people are not. Self-motivated is not showing up when the conditions are perfect. Self-motivated is showing up when you're repeatedly punched in the face. And how many people can do that, right? Like you, you feel lazy, you don't go to the gym, three days later, the habit's gone, that kind of thing. So I'm like, you know, I'll go and maybe take these coaching classes and whatnot, which I did, like Toastmasters and that. But the first time somebody makes fun of me, I might drop. So he said, what's the best skill I can learn that would, you know, what's the best job I could get that would help me do the skill day in, day out? And it was sales. So I graduated engineering, only started applying to sales jobs. And the funny thing is nobody would give me a sales job. Awkward engineer, why would you hire me in sales? And so, you know, holding that thought again, like companions matter the most, I applied, I, I I got a job cold calling now at a startup. Phenomenal, right? Like, okay, first step in, nobody would give me a sales job to close deals. Obviously, I don't know what I'm doing, but they gave me a job like sort of back then the word SDR, BDR also didn't exist and cold caller. First, first call, I practice four hours. Decision maker comes on the line. I hang up. Everyone's laughing. Right? <laughs> Been there. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you're now on payroll. My parents are not coming from money. So I got to do this job. Like I took this job. So I got to keep doing it. And, and that is the key lesson there is 
If you want to get better at something you suck at, put yourself in an environment, not self-motivation, put yourself in an environment that forces you to do that something over and over and over again. Now, my girlfriend, now wife, who, who I'm everything because of her support, right? She paid the bills. She got into med school in New Jersey. I had moved to New Jersey. So I started applying to jobs now in New Jersey. I got a free trade visa, the TN visa at a startup. Because, of, because I worked at a first startup, I probably couldn't apply to other bigger companies. I got a job in another small company. And uh, when I land there, it's not quite a sales job. I was so excited selling to big enterprises, doing sales. But it was a job where you're figuring stuff out. You're talking to customers, trying to understand their pain points. And now it went from on the phone to large enterprise deals. Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster, Urban Outfitters. Walk their floor, understand their pain points, then translate that into requirements for developers. <laughs> then, oh, by the way, you also need to build a marketing site and the marketing materials, website, SEO, yada, yada. And I'm like, crap, what did I get myself into? Like, It's like a 10, 15-person company but I had direct purview to the CEO. The chief operating officer quit within three months. So like lots of action. Now, I think a lot of people this day and age would have quit that job because they're like, hey, where's my career going here? I'm like, at another startup, I don't think I can build a sales career here. I'm doing like everything in the kitchen sink, cleaning the kitchen sink here. But I had no liberty to quit, man. I came to the US on a visa. If I wanted to be with this girl, my desire to be with my girlfriend was a lot higher than any pain I would endure. So I did that job for like two, two and a half, three years. And I got better and better at stuff. And now you see, I said, you know, my first community was the slums in Mumbai, then the Gulf War. And now I had to learn everything about sales and marketing. And at the time, 2005 or so, six, everything I'd find on online sales and marketing was from HubSpot's email marketing community, email marketing certification, HubSpot's community. So that became like, you know, a group that I regularly hang out at, visit their events, et cetera. Then my wife gets into a residency in Philly, Drexel. So I go to another startup and see the progression now. I go from being sales, which was a sales job, but I end up doing so much of like product and marketing and talking to customers, being this renaissance salesperson. I already had the cold calling knowledge. So the next job I get as like head of sales and marketing at a startup. Wow. And so when I hit a ceiling and my wife uh, got into fellowship at Stanford, around the same time, my buddy from college called me and he said he wanted to do this startup. And, you know, I was going through a lot of stress at work. And uh, I used to work till 9, 10 anyway. My wife was in residency. They work 100 hours. But one, one week, I started going home at 6. And I, you know, after two days of doing that, I get an email from the CEO of the startups, who's by the way, a very close friend of mine now, but back then was probably under a lot of pressure from investors. And he says, I used to like it when you're in the office till 9, 10, your wife's in residency working 100 hour weeks. What's causing you to go home at six, All right? And actually my parents were visiting town and I hadn't seen them in a while. That's why I was going home at six. So my heart sank. And when, when I went home, Alex, my co-founder at Bose, called me and he said, I want to do this startup. And I, I don't care what we do, man. As long as we can build the company we want to work for, I'm, I'm down. And that was the journey. But that was my journey to entrepreneurship. Now, I don't want to you know, just share this as a story, a platitude. But I want to pull out a few instances that you can, the audience can probably use as, as key learnings from it to improve their skills. So number one, your companions matter the most. You become, you truly become the average of the five people you surround yourself with. Who you're with can make you 
in an elevated state of rock star like mine or make you feel like a peasant. So make sure the people you surround yourself with are positive. They uplift you. They give you opportunities. You learn from them. So two things. One was I was always around a community of happy people. Two, work community was always working for founders. If you want to be a founder someday, even though I never thought I would be, but if you work first job for a founder, second job, third job for a founder, then what are the odds? You're going to go become a founder, right? When you hit a ceiling. So, so that is important. The second thing, so that, that's the first C, I guess I call it companions or community. The second C is communication. I don't care what you say. One of the top skills is communication. Get better at it. Everything is communicating. The third thing is creation, whether it's content, whether it's products, whether it's playbooks. I had a combination of these things because I was creating content where I went to talk to customers. I was creating, I was responsible for helping create products as well by taking customer requirements and translating them into wireframes and docs. But I was also responsible for, for creating like marketing materials and all of these things. So get better at creating whatever it is. Just create, right? It expands your brains. And then the fourth one is, you know, without this fourth thing, Tyler, you have nothing, is consistency. Consistency, and Jason Lemkin, who runs Saster, wrote the forward in this book, and he said, consistency is the magic ingredient that turns small actions into big outcomes. He's sold his company previously to Adobe. He pioneered eSign. And so I truly believe that if you, if I look back at my journey, it was one, the companions. Two, I took that step to improve my communication, not by going to like, I did the Toastmasters and all that, but by putting myself in an environment that forced me to communicate consistently sales. I put myself in an environment where I was forced to create content to improve my relationship with customers, create wireframes to build products and, and marketing materials and all of that. Put yourself in a situation that forces you to create. And lastly, never stop, man. Be consistent. Your companions, your communication, your create creativity, your creation, and your consistency will take you very far. I love it. Hey, I'm sure people are going like, hey, what book or what book do we keep mentioning? So I'm going to say the title of the book. It's From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. And uh, it just, I think it came out just last week. I pre-ordered it and I think I was notified. Uh, was it last week that it came live? Yeah, so we did a soft launch this week. Actually, it's been it's been on pre-sale since August 11th and we're going to do the big push uh, the week of uh, September 18th. Yeah, the big push. Got it. What, what I'm fascinated by, and I'd already cited this, is you know, I can't tell you how many times people are experts on something or maybe they've written books about it. And this happened to me the other day. Someone, you know, expert in YouTube, and I go to their website, I'm kind of researching about them, and they don't even have a YouTube link on their own website. And I'm like, okay, well, how are you a YouTube expert? And shouldn't that be the main thing you're driving is your own YouTube channel, you would think? So then I went and looked up their YouTube. They have like three videos. But what I love about you is like I use that example of going to LinkedIn, like this whole community of people were like just blowing up your LinkedIn with responses willing to support you. So what is the secret sauce? Because like your perspective is unique. Like when you talk about the sum, the being in the slums, to you, that was like, I wanted to be there. Truthfully, Lloyd, I think if we talk to most people, 
they'd be like, I'm, I'm doing everything to get out of here. I'm, I want to, I, and I'm never going to, I'm going to have a scarcity mentality and I'm never going to look back in my life. So what gives you this perspective? And, and I think that's part of what something we need to have as, as individuals in this community growth. What, what's your thoughts around that? You know, I did eventually start having a scarcity mindset. And I'll tell you this very interesting thing. When you're a kid, you make the best of everything. Na- naivety and innocence is bliss. Okay. I was a kid. So to me, we lived in a decent apartment in Kuwait, not nothing fancy or anything. I went to schools. Yeah. I didn't go to a big private school, but like to me as a kid, I had food, I had shelter. My dad worked in the hotel. My mom gave up her career to stay at home and look after me. I had friends, you know, I had, you know, the best of everything I thought I had. Like I, I didn't have, see, when you don't know luxury, right? You don't know it. Like I had the necessities. So when I went there, I'm like, I got latched onto the camaraderie of the people because I'm like, hey, people are in and out of each other's house. When they cook extra, they're uh, they're like so warm and welcoming. And anyone, any human being, we're nurtured and motivated by what? By love and praise. If somebody comes and says, you're looking great, Tyler. Wow, what did you do? Man, like, you know, compliment you, thank you, like reward you you're going to keep showing up for more. And, and that's a key thing. And that, that's what I found about the camaraderie there was people were just spending time with each other, sharing with each other, like, oh, I cooked a little extra, so sending it over. But then we have this unwritten rule in that Indian community in general is you never send a bowl empty back. So then they send it back and send it back. And it's like a boomerang, right? And so I don't know what it was, but the, the love and the connect, connection the togetherness and and the and the recognition the reward truly like made me coming back for more and so i never like i it was i was naive i was a kid i never had that scarcity mentality but what's funny is that experience in the slum gulf war the same thing i honestly never it was everyone freaks out when they look at the pictures and everything my best time was there living in the refugee camp we would play soccer and cricket and eat together cook together. it felt like a camp it it really didn't feel feel like anything. And our parents, our families, adults also shield us when they're laughing and singing, right? They're like, you know what? Let's make the most of it. You're probably going to get bombed or maybe not. How do you know what's going to happen? But why destroy the moment right now for what will happen three, four weeks or maybe never, right? And so I was never in an environment where people had little and were just bitching and complaining. That is, and a lot of what we become, Tyler, is nurture, not nature, we we mistake it like, oh, I was born with talent. No, you know, the most talented people can be disrupted with consistency and love, right? And passion. That's that's the reality. So the one thing I had consistently was surrounded by people in like crappy conditions. But when I was in there, it never felt like crappy conditions. I'm telling this story and people are in awe today. But truly, I kid you not, I went there summer after summer after summer into my teens and I never felt like this was a crappy condition. Went through the whole Gulf War, living in camps, playing, never felt like this was a crappy condition. So I'll tell you something really funny. I almost burned down the refugee camp. As we were taking, going on the buses from Kuwait and we went to Baghdad and Jordan, every bus had this earmarked uh, supplies, right? And they had a color code. Now, I think our bus had black was gasoline and white was water. And so, like I said, I was feeling like a little Rambo. I was moving these large cans of gasoline and water. So I accidentally moved and the buses were so close. 
I may have accidentally moved a large can of water is what I thought from the next bus over to mine. Now, I think there was a mistake in the color code. So we get to the, the Amman Jordan camp and my uncle, he's really tall. He's like 6'4". They set up a bonfire with a large vessel to say, hey, let's make some tea for everyone. So many people. And he starts pouring this water and it like literally caught on fire and people are running. But you know what? Nobody complained and sat and moped. We literally started singing right after, like, you know, maybe within the next half hour after everything was fine and we're playing. It was, man, that, that's the thing. In 2023, we have so much, yet we sit and mope about what we don't have. And I'll tell you how this, this, this mindset impacted me in a big way. So never had any money. Then be bootstrap boast. Literally, I slept on the futon of my co-founder's house, spare bedroom for like a year. And we built this company, man, to 10 million ARR with no marketing team with 30 people, okay? High gross margins. I was happy. We sold half the company, 52%. I say, this is the one thing which founders don't realize is if you bootstrap a company, you can own your destiny. If you can just get it to 10 recurring revenue, if you're a recurring revenue business. And then the other half, right? We, we gave like 10% to employees and stuff. And me and my co-founder still own about 38% or so of the company. So we, we de-risk in the short term, we upside for the long term. Now, if I contrast it back to every other startup I worked at, and after that, I did two others in parallel to Boast, um, they were all in some way or shape or form connected to venture and had outside money, and they all failed. That was the commonality. The only time I saw any money was bootstrapping the company. And we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit later on, on why this addiction to unicorn porn and venture is bad, unless it's deliberate effort that you really want to go on that journey. But nonetheless, so all my life, I had no money and I was happy because I was surrounded by great people who never thought like the life was half empty. They thought it was half full. I came into money. I left the day-to-day of my company and I ended up depressed. I got overweight. I hit rock bottom. I became crazy, crazy. And I'll encapsulate the craziness that ensued in one, in one story. The craziness of the eight months after leaving my company that, that in one story. So I was speaking at a conference in Romania. And uh, I think that was 2022 June. And there's a conference after speaker retreat. And we're in three and a half hours away from Bucharest Airport in the wilderness. 2 a.m. Speakers are all hanging out in the pool. I'm frantically dialing for an Uber. They're like, nobody, you're not going to get a car. <laughs> I'm asking the bell person at the hotel. They're like, no way you're going to get a car. So Uber keeps searching, searching, searching. 40 minutes, th- I think 30, 20, 30 minutes go by. Then I hear this, ding, it's on the way. I wait, I wait, I wait. The Uber finally shows up. Tell him, can you hold on a sec? I go to my room, pack the bags, bring them down. I put the laptop on his car with his Wi-Fi. I book a flight to Costa Rica. I tell everyone, guys, I'm heading to Costa Rica. Make a three and a half hour drive to Bucharest Airport. Now this is at like 2.40 or something in the morning to take the 7.30 flight to Costa Rica. This is how crazy I got. And then my, when I come back, my wife, she's a physician. She understood what I was going through. She's like, I let you mope, but you're in a position to go anywhere, do anything. The glass is always half full. And if something happens to you, your kids are going to be left holding the bag. And then... I came to realization and I started to transform my health. And what got me to good health was a fitness community that I joined. And that's why I wrote the book is like, as I started to reflect back, I said, all my life, I had no money and I was happy. The only time I hit rock bottom when I came to money and I thought my tribe had left me 
And I was going from place to place to place, catching up with different community members. I went crazy. And, and it was a series of things that, that transpired, actually. After we cashed out, I got bilateral COVID pneumonia and almost died. Oh. Then, then the company went from like 35-ish people to 120, 30 people. And then I left the day-to-day. And so it was, it was a lot of, it was a very crazy year, 21 for me. And as I reflected back, I'm like, you know what? There is nothing bigger than the power of human-to-human connection. Loneliness is the number one killer in America. And there's this concept of blue zones, which are the five places in the world where people live functionally until the year 100. Functionality is key to longevity. Longevity without functionality is useless. And those places have nine traits. Four or five out of the traits have to do with human-to-human connection. So then what I started to do is I, I came up on all this free time. I started to research and look back because we had a big community called Traction. I had lots of talks to watch. I had lots of people to talk to in the community. I joined other communities as like fly on the wall for the past couple of years. And I looked behind the scenes at every brand that had endured, not like just the tech brands, which came up in the last 20 or so years, but like generational brands like the Harley Davidsons of the world. And I found something very interesting. Every obscure idea that eventually went on to become a global enduring phenomena from Christianity to CrossFit, from Christ to CrossFit, every obscure idea that became an enduring global phenomena went through the exact same stages, exact same four stages. People listen to you, you have an audience. A lot of influencers right, have audiences. When you bring those people to interact with one another, it becomes a community. Now, when the community comes together to create impact towards a far greater purpose than your product or profit, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals, over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. So let that sink in, audience, community, movement, religion. And the key to taking an audience to something that's enduring over time is community. That's like the stepping stone. And that is true for lasting cultures, lasting brands, lasting religions, lasting communities, lasting you name it. And the shoe dropped for me and I said, I got to write about this. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. And the key to taking an audience to something that's enduring over time is community. That's like the stepping stone. And that is true for lasting cultures, lasting brands, lasting religions, lasting communities, lasting you name it. And the shoe dropped for me. And I said, I got to write about this. So I want to get to a little bit about the book. You have these 13 rules. Is there one that you think sticks out in terms of like, let's think in the context of a business, relatively small business, one to 20 million in revenue, annual revenue. Is there one like that stands out as a favorite of yours that we should be thinking about as business owners and entrepreneurs? In terms of uh, 
the tips on building a community? Yeah, just like just one of the 13, the 13 rules. Is there one that stands out for you? Because obviously, unfortunately, we can't cover all 13 rules. So maybe there's just one that stands out. I'll combine a few because okay. I think I want to I leave the audience with some, some tactical value here. So, so I will combine the first few rules, right? Because I get asked a lot, I want to build a community. When can I monetize? Two common questions. And do I start a Slack group or a Facebook group? <laughs> when do I make money? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I tell people, number one, number one, number one rule. If you don't have the DNA of giving and you want to extract value before you give value, just don't build a community. You need to have a DNA culture of giving. Your core value should be, I want to help others. If you want to extract value before you even give value, don't do a community. Do direct response, sales, ads, whatever. Don't do this because this is a long haul, right? Uh, that's key. The other thing is, you know, in that same vein of giving value first before extracting value, you follow this path. Everything follows this path. Visibility, credibility, and then profitability. You're visible. You become credible as a function of giving value. You become profitable. And so in that same vein, asking like about the platform to be on is like saying, hey, I don't know what religion I belong to, but I think I'm going to go and build a mosque. For what, right? So the first step is then once you know that you have the DNA of giving is who is your ideal customer profile? Who are you serving? Who do you want to create for? Who do you want to bring together? So let's say you don't know who do you want to bring together. How do you start? Number one is, do I have a passion for this audience? Can I keep creating? Building a company, building a community-led company in particular is a labor of love, is a marathon of the heart and mind. If you hate your audience, you will not sustain, man, because you got to spend all your time with them. So how are you going to do that? Do I have a love, passion for this audience? Is it a small niche, but growing? Small, I like small. I like niching down because it's easier to find white space versus going large saturated. Is there a propensity to pay? Or this is a bunch of brokies kind of thing. Like there's no money I'm going to make here. Eventually, at some point, you got to get paid. And the last one is ease of access. You may have all the passion for the audience and it may be a massive market, but if you can't access, you're done, right? So start with an audience that you can access that you want to love and create. When we started Boast, uh, we were cold calling accounting, I'm sorry, we were cold calling oil and gas, construction, manufacturing companies to use our service. Nobody would. We started going to their events and we felt like two young guys who threw on a suit jacket on top of a hoodie and they looked like the cigars club. We couldn't resonate. So we started hitting up startup events and it felt like our tribe. And as a function of hanging out with them, they became our friends. We started having dinners with them, partying with them, doing hackathons with them. And then we found something really interesting. We found two white spaces. This was 2012, but startups wasn't huge. And so we found one white space was all the events at the time when there were no podcasting for business wasn't huge and LinkedIn for business wasn't huge. Insta, none of that was huge for business. All the events were run by event organizers who wanted to fill butts and seats. And when they do that, they bring like the most popular speaker who may be like 50, 100 million revenue company, they don't resonate with our audience who are start, our initial audience of founders. I'm at zero one. I don't need inspiration. I don't need a platitude. I need the tactics. And the second thing was the local media wouldn't cover any of them. And so I reached out and convinced the local media to give me a weekly column called Startup of the Week, which went in print and online. And I got a weekly backlink to our blog. I also got a form in there where people would apply. Everyone would apply to be featured in that. Then we would invite everyone who applied to come to meetups we did on tactical advice. How do you get your first customers, et cetera. But these two tactics wouldn't come if we didn't have a love for that audience. We didn't understand where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep. Not only understand their problems and goals, because problems and goals are short-lived, but understand their aspirations. Aspirations are long, right? 
And when you build a massive company, eventually, you have more than one product. If you focus on the problem, you'll just be stuck there. If you focus on the aspiration, then you'll build multiple things on that path, like salesforce.com has sales cloud, then service cloud and marketing cloud. Why? Because they followed the aspiration of the ICP, of the ideal customer profile. And so it's understanding that ideal customer profile. The next thing is understanding the ideal customer profile circle of influence. Who do they fund? Meaning what are the tools they pay for and services they pay for? Those are the people who could sponsor your events or co-host events with you. So you co-host events and exchange lists, right? A great way. Who do they follow? Meaning who are the influencers in the space? Those are the people you can invite to speak at your events or podcasts. And where do they frequent? Meaning what blogs, magazines they read, what platforms they're prevalent on. That'll give you the place to distribute content. Then you follow this journey of audience, community, movement, religion. And the simple thing is, how do you create an audience? Pick one and create there consistently. When you start getting an audience, then drive them to come together. Newsletter, um, make your online webinars, or rather make your online podcasts open so people can join and interact with the speaker. Do small meetups. You don't have to do a big production like our Traction Conference or a Saster Conference. You can just host like 10, 20 person meetups on Cadence. I truly think, right, doing smaller things on a Cadence is better than doing one large event because with that one large event, you're only promoting that one large event. But we grew our subscribers to 100,000 plus by doing small events because one small events are easy. Like, you know, on on a whim, you can say, hey, let's just meet up at, at this local bar or, and you book a room there and you get like 10, 20 people to show up and, you know, it's easy to get the tab or you can do a pizza night in your office, which we did for years, or you can do like one or two live webinars a week. The thing with doing more frequent, smaller events is every time you promote, it's a new dopamine hit. When you promote a conference, they open your email. That's the trigger. They take an action, right? So th- th- you send an email. That's a trigger. They take an action, which is open the email. They get the same reward, right? Which is, oh, come to this conference, come to the conference, come to the conference. Every time they get an email from you, it's a new dopamine hit. Oh, come hang out with the CEO of this or come learn that other thing and you get exclusive access. So it's a new dopamine hit. So they will keep coming back for more. And so that is the key. Doing smaller, small production, less frequent, more human things makes people relate to you rather than some big production once a year thing. So think that through. I think think those are some early steps to building a community. And then it's about like not stopping, right? Like look at Mr. Beast or Gary Vaynerchuk or Jason Lemkin. You know, what's funny is I I learned about video marketing back in 2005, six, I had created a YouTube video. And I learned that because Gary Vaynerchuk, who was running Wine TV at the time, had a course on HubSpot's community, inbound marketing community. And he was so bullish on the power of video for business, but he never stopped. See, he went from being Gary Vaynerchuk to being Gary V and he still didn't stop. The best never stop. It's funny when you say that, you know, one of the things you talked about is consistency and it immediately just like hits me in the head, Gary V. I mean, if you think of all the years, he's just endlessly posted content, nonstop, nonstop. His consistency has built up to, like you said, now he's Gary V and he's, you know, this national name that everybody knows. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's wild. Hey, one thing I wanted to cover because you did mention it, you talked about Boast AI and VC capital, venture capital, private equity or growth equity. 
And I think the point you were making, and please please fill this in, is the fact that you had built this company to 10 million ARR. Now you had you could go out and get the equity or people to buy in because you already had this established company. Was that really the concept of growth equity? Is there anything you can add to that or clarify? So there's three kinds of capital you can raise, right? For the most, outside of friends, family, and fools. <laughs> One is venture capital, okay? And a quick snapshot of venture capital is this. And there's, they get a lot of hate, but there's nothing wrong. It's just founders are misguided or uneducated, right? A lot of what we tell founders is polish the pitch to make the turd look so shiny and the market so big that you'll win the deal. It's not about winning the deal. It's about winning the deal when there is nothing beyond the deal. If he's like signing and running, but beyond a venture capital deal or a sales partnership with a customer is a long-standing relationship that you got to deliver something, right? People buy from you. If you just sold them a bunch of goods and then you can't deliver, the customer is going to churn. The same thing, if you sold them on the vision of making a multi-billion dollar company that you just did because you wanted to get their money, but you had no intention of doing, having a venture capitalist on your cap table it's a long marriage, man. It's a 10 plus year journey. You're signing up for misery. So the venture capital math is this. They want to generate outsized returns. They'd raise money from institutional limited partners, investors, like endowment funds and whatnot. Like Harvard like, has like a 53 billion endowment fund or something crazy like that. These organizations want to create impact and they want the money they have from their donations and endowments and everything else to go to good use. The reason why they would invest in a venture capital fund is because it will generate an outsized return. That's it. It's going to generate an outsized return. If a VC can't generate an outsized return for an institutional LP or for any LP, the LP is better off putting it in the S&P 500, right? It always averages 10%. So why would they give you this money? So you can generate an outsized return. And so if you're not going to generate an outside return, that's bad for a VC. The VC wants to 10x that money, 100x that money, because that's how they generate outsized returns. And if they don't, they can't raise the next fund and the next one and the next one. That's the reality. So then when a VC invests, at the bottom, bottom of the barrel, the math is, if all shit hits the fan, they want to at least return 3x the last valuation. So you raise a seed round at 10 million. Can you sell the company at 30? That's a, you know, that's the, this is a baseline expectation. You can sell the company for 30. Lots of deals getting done. Say you raise a Series A at 50 million. Can you sell the company for 150 million? That's the bottom of the barrel expectation. Some deals get done at 150. Now you raise at 100 million valuation. Can you sell the company for 300 million at a bottom line? Not many deals getting done at 300, right? And what happened in the last two years? People raising at 300, 400, half a billion valuation. So now what happens? You've signed up for an IPO. How many companies IPO? What percentage of the startup market has IPO'd or actually sold for billions of dollars? Now you've literally turned a bet into a lottery. You've turned an educated bet, educated risk. Now you've, you've turned into a lottery. And so the second kind is private equity, where you grow it sustainably, you know, and this doesn't apply to just SaaS. It could be any business, but you grow it. Now you need money to scale it. Somebody buys majority, right? And they roll it into a strategy. That's private equity. They buy it. There's an earn out period, all of this stuff. Now, of course, in between, you can sell to a strategic. You can get a strategic investor. I mean, this is not meant to be a masterclass on, on all kinds of investments, but you can sell to a strategic. Strategic meaning some partner who's bigger than you, like you know somebody you sell to 
sell products or services to that they find you as ancillary or creative to their business, they might invest to eventually buy you any number of things or IPO. But in between, there's this growth equity where they invest in companies that are largely bootstrapped and that have a clean cap table. I'm still here. I'm still here. Yeah, they have a clean cap table, largely bootstrapped and high gross margins, recurring revenue model. And what they do is if you're like, say, north of 5 million, maybe the sweet spot is 10, high gross margins, low CAC payback period, meaning you're not spending a lot, like each customer you sign, the money you spend on, um, it's paying back very quickly. If your customer acquisition cost is like zero, then you know it's even great, right? Very few people are like that. But if your customer acquisition cost is low, then it doesn't matter how much you sign the each additional customer for. It's just more revenue. And so businesses like that with like low customer acquisition cost, high gross margin, recurring, clean cap table, growing decently, they don't care about like growing 2x, 5x, whatever. But if you're growing like 50, 70%, you have this access to this growth equity. And our investors are Radiant Capital out of New York, great people. They liquidate the founders in the sense that the money you take can go to de-risk yourself in the short term. And because you've bootstrapped now, you have enough upside to play the long game. So there's this class of growth equity that you should truly look at. But before you look at anything or any form of capital, I urge you entrepreneurs, business people, startup folk, whatever you want to call yourself, creators, let's call it that. We're all creators. Ask yourself these four or five questions. One, what is my personal definition of success? Not money. I don't want to hear a number. I don't want to hear money. What is my personal definition of success? Meaning, if you had the ability to do what you want, where you want, when you want, with whom you want, write down what that would be. Maybe that is farming in Bali, I don't know, or bumming on a beach in Costa Rica. If you could do what you want, where you want, when you want, with whom you want forever, what would that look like? Just write down your day. What does that look like? Number two, how much money do you need in your bank account to do that forever? Number three, right? Is there a version of the company you don't want to work for? How long do you see yourself running the company? Are there things that give you joy in running the business and other things that don't? And once you know that, then you can figure out what kind of capital I want to raise. Because then you can find alignment. Great companies, great cultures, great relationships are built on alignment. Now you know like, hey, you know what? I don't want to run this thing for five, 10 years. I want to like bum around on the beach in Bali for the rest of my life. I don't want to set an alarm clock. I don't want to run, run, run. I want my money to work for me. So you know what? To sustain this lifestyle till I die, I probably need, I don't know, uh, to live in Bali. Maybe I need like at best, 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 best. I need maybe $100,000, $150,000 a year. Okay, so can I build like an efficient, capital efficient business that generates a million a year, two million a year? and hire contractors or staff overseas and service US clients. And maybe I'll move to Bali. You don't have to raise venture capital to do that, right? But what happens is we're in the society that thinks, let's go and raise money first. So you go and raise money. To raise money now, you got to, come on. Any founder that tells me they've not exaggerated on a pitch deck is freaking lying and look yourself <laughs> in the mirror, right. okay? You've now gone and exaggerated the story out of the nines without asking yourself, if you want to build a unicorn, a billion-dollar company to create this big impact, do it by all means. 
but don't do it for the wrong reasons because you know almost every founder that's been successful and built a unicorn, because I've had so many of them on my podcast, they're doing it for the right reasons because they want to do it. They wake up every day wanting to do it. But don't do it for the wrong reasons because it's sexy, it's cool, right? Because start by defining your definition of success. And if your definition of success is, I want to create something that'll impact billions of people's and change their lives, and that'll motivate me till I die, and I want to wake up doing that every single day, do it. Go raise venture money. But if it's like if it's like bumming in Bali or like, you know, working on my own schedule, having fun, you know, going to festivals every weekend kind of thing, like don't like just write down that definition and how much money you have. Map out, like create a budget. Like, you know, to this is we create a budget for everything. We're proactive with everything other than two things, our health and our wealth. You know that's right. This is we're proactive with our jobs and everything. Health and wealth. Put down all the things that make you healthy. And start doing them small steps one by one, and the compound interest will be huge. Put down all the things that you need to have in your budget to live the life that you dream of. Right, write down like I'm going to do this. I'm going to you know coffee at this place. Write down all of that stuff. Living in Bali, rent. Write that down, and you will be surprised how much that costs. And then decide: I want to raise venture. I want to do growth equity. I want to do neither. I'm just going to sell X clients. I'm going to fill the churn. And it's going to enable me to live in Bali. Yeah. It's applicable to a lot of people, even beyond uh, people that are in the venture space or startup phase, just regular business owners writing down what's going to make you happy, your health. What are some things you could be doing to make your health better? So I love that. That's really applicable to a lot of different uh, people. Hey, question I I always love to end, and you kind of already gave it to me, so I'm being greedy here, but I I love to end if there's like a a business or a life tip, something that you've experienced along the way. You've already given me a ton. So once again, I feel greedy, but if there's something you got that you could spin off of, I'd love to hear it. Definitely. Like the president of Atlassian, who I'm a huge fan of, told me once, self-care is not selfish. It's good stewardship towards the only way you can create value in the world. Put your oxygen mask first. If I had to turn that into how that changed my life, I do not do anything in the morning before I work out. I will cancel meetings. I will change everything if I cannot work out. There's a study that a friend had forwarded me about the Naperville High School zero-hour PE. They made students work out before they did any activity, open a page of a book, and their IQ exploded, their intellect, their sports capabilities, fitness, everything exploded at a global level from being this no-name brand uh, school. There's no brain function that exercise doesn't improve. Workout first thing in the morning. I don't care. Like I'm not saying go and do bodybuilding. I'm saying like walk for 15 minutes. I'm saying maybe do 10 push-ups and then maybe the following week do two sets of 10 push-ups. Then the following week do four sets of 10 push-ups. Then try to increase it to 15. Like do activity where you eventually can wake up and work out for at least half an hour, right? And then maybe start progressing to weights. But do this every day. The first thing you do should be working out. That's my view. And people say, I can't do it at night. And that's my tip. Self-care is not selfish. If you can do something for yourself, wake up before you do anything else, work out. Exercise releases endorphins in your brains that calms the feeling of stress and it pumps you up. And you know, something with weights, especially when you lift more, you can push more. Pain is the precondition for growth in life, in business. The more you endure, of course, not endure because of stupidity. I'm going to go and cross the road without looking left and right. The pain you get there (laughs) is is stupidity, right? It's not 
self-inflicted pain, but pain you endure as a function of doing difficult things, taking on new challenges that were hard for you now will seem easy and you become stronger. The same thing, you lift weights, you know, think about it, you're failing at work, okay? Let's, let's say you're failing in life, but you go to the gym every morning and you hit new PRs. It, man, it uplifts your brain. You feel like Superman, Wonder Woman. Now you want to go and tackle the world with a new perspective. Do this. Love it. That's good stuff. Hey, your website, and I'll put this in the show notes at thinktyler.com, your website where people can check out and find out more about your book, from grassrootstogreatness.com. And once again, the book name is From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. So I'll make sure I put those in the show notes. You also, of course, have LinkedIn. If, If people want to reach out to you, is LinkedIn the spot? Yeah, LinkedIn's the spot. Go LinkedIn, follow me. I put a lot of uh, good content there. Now it's gone to weekly, but eventually I'll move back to like two, three times a week. Awesome. Okay, great. Hey, Lloyd, you've given a lot of different pieces of knowledge and tips. Can't thank you enough. I'd love to have you again in the future. So thanks for uh, taking your time and, and look forward to talking to you again. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you so much, man. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Acid.